0: They did put on very vivid display the ways in which Christianity and white supremacy in particular have, in our history, been intermingled and and sit very comfortably together
1: in these spaces. Welcome to Baptist Without an Adjective, a podcast of Word and Way. I'm your host, Word and Way Editor and President, Brian Kaler. On this program, we'll hear from Baptists from across the denominational, ethnic, national, and ideological lines that too often divide us. At Word & Way, we've been informing and inspiring Baptists since 1896. Learn more about us at wordandway.org. This episode is sponsored in part by the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. The Cooperative Baptist Fellowship has valued theological education as a vital component of vocational ministry preparation for more than 25 years. It puts these words to action by investing in students who are current and future ministry leaders in CBF life. The fellowship awards up to 70 scholarships annually to Baptist students enrolled in the Master of Divinity degree program at an accredited institution of higher education. For more information about all that CBF offers students, visit cbf.net slash seminary resources. In this episode, we're going to have a conversation with Robert P. Jones. He's the CEO and founder of PRRI, Public Religion Research Institute. It's a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization dedicated to conducting independent research at the intersection of religion, culture, and public policy. He's also the author of the book, White Too Long The Legacy of White Supremacy in American Christianity. And it is a fantastic book. I encourage you to pick it up. It came out last year. And it really is a, a timely read and making sense of a lot of what we've been seeing happening. We're going to be talking about the book in this episode. But I also was excited to have him on the program because I think he also has insights to help us make sense of what we saw at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. This violent insurrection where we saw not just symbols of white supremacy like the confederate flag but we also saw christian symbols mixed in together with that mob so he's going to help us unpack what we saw what it means and and what do we do next so here's my conversation with robert p jones of prri well robbie first of all thanks for joining us on the program Oh yeah, happy to be here. So last week we all watched the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol, and I, I know that you were you, you were struck by some of the same things I was because you've written about it for Religion News Service, and we republished the editorial on our website at WordandWay.org about the Christian symbols that were mixed in with the crowd, Christian flag flying along American flags and Confederate flags. Jesus saves, Bibles, a a number of other religious Christian symbols and signs. And so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, about what struck you about that and why that's so important that we pay attention to those symbols in this moment. Well, you know, I titled the piece
0: Taking Symbols Seriously um, because I think so often, um, even today on Twitter, I was uh, noting people were listing all the different kinds of people who were part of the crowd um in you know and just part of a kind of mainstream media story and didn't mention any of the religious symbols and i had to type this kind of thing and said and crosses and bibles and jesus 2020 signs and you know and all of that and um and so i i think it's it's easy for people to sometimes uh, somehow move past it and and i think part of it is that sometimes people don't know what to do with it but or that it's so jarring to see a cross and a Confederate flag, you know, uh, sitting side by side. But I, but I think you know we have to take these these things seriously, and that they, if there's one benefit, I think to really the ugliness of those events this week, it is that they did put on very vivid display the ways in which Christianity and white supremacy, in particular, have in our history been intermingled and and sit. Very comfortably together in these spaces, um, you know, th- and and I think that's the thing to take seriously and and to interrogate what that really means for for our history, where we are, and and where where we have to go as a nation.
1: Yeah, I appreciate that you're trying to call us to pay attention to these symbols. So last Wednesday, actually, before everything happened in D.C., I live in the Missouri State Capitol, and so I went down. There was a smaller, kind of related rally at the state capital, so I went mm-hmm. by just to just to see it and take some pictures and noticed a lot of these symbols there. There was the Christian flag there mixed in with the Trump flags, signs about God, prayers to God, God save us. And so I was already kind of, you know, paying attention. And as someone who pays attention to religious symbols like you do, I was noting these symbols here in Jefferson city came home about noon and started watching, you know, everything happening in DC. And so, you know, these this isn't an isolated even event. I mean, this is you know the more violent example, but we've been seeing these mixing of these Christian symbols and white supremacist symbols. You know, not just in the last few years, but obviously going back for yeah. a decades. And so, you know, I think this is a great time to be talking about your book that came out last year, "White Too Long," which is a is a phenomenal book, and I really recommend people check it out as as making sense of this moment, which. You wrote before all of this happened. It came out what well, last summer, in, in summer of 2020, and really is is the book we need for this moment. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your book, and then I want to unpack a few things specifically. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. It's very kind. Um, you know, it
0: it is right that I was writing before you know any before the kind of Black Lives Matter protests the summer before George Floyd. But the reason why I was writing is because there's that none of this is that new. Right. I mean, I think, you know, we, we, some you know, I think particularly with this year, with the pandemic and election, sometimes you can't feel like you can't even see past 2020. Uh, um, but, you know, w- w- the, the, the event that really pushed me to start working on the book really was Dylan Roof, uh, you know, shooting nine African-Americans in church, right, uh, who explicitly said he was doing it to start a race war. And what got, again, overlooked, I think, by, you know, is that he was – he got portrayed as a, you know, disturbed individual, as a white supremacist who had gotten radicalized on the internet and all of that is true. But what was not really reported that well was that he was a member in good standing at a, at a Lutheran church, right? Um, and that he, and that he actually had integrated his Christian identity with his white supremacist identity. And, and, you know, in the journal he had in prison, I featured this in the book, um, you know, he had, portraits of a white Jesus drawn and portraits of doodlings of crosses. There were more than a dozen crosses in this journal that he wrote in prison as he was awaiting trial, and really none of that got interrogated very much. The, the, to their credit, the um, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, the denomination, did take this seriously, and, and they actually, the uh, bishops spoke about it, um, the denomination spoke about it, and it spurred them, I think, to take some action on reckoning with this legacy of white supremacy within their, their myths. But I think that's the thing that really struck me is that, you know, we live in a country where white supremacy, and by, and by that, I don't mean just the KKK, right? I think this is important, but I mean, a, a, a fundamental belief that this country was set up to be a white country and that, that whites really had ownership of the country and that this was legitimized by Christian theology right that, that this is the way God intended the world to be in fact and there was a kind of this paternalistic um view that whites were uh intended by God to be on top of the social order and then they were going to bring along everyone else they had this kind of paternal you know responsibility to bring along the less enlightened races is the way this theology went but this this was no fringe theology I mean this was mainstream white theology not just in evangelical circles but in mainline Protestant circles and white Catholic circles as well. And, you know, we sort of gradually drifted away from that being okay to say out loud, but we've never really reckoned or reformed that underlying theology um, that that, you know, was built for centuries.
1: One of the things that you do in the book is 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 look at this history that goes on well before the kkk yeah. you just noted and looking at a lot of different aspects and, and one of the things you did in one of the chapters was talk about violence related to election results which i thought was even more interesting as i was flipping back through the book the last couple of days uh, you talk particularly about the the event in colfax louisiana on easter which i think really adds a lot to the, the yeah. realism and understanding that moment because it does seem like we, we've seen a lot of these types of race riots and lynchings happening around Good Friday and Easter does seem to spark some of those uh, events. And so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that in our history, this idea that we've seen these white lash, you know, violent events in response to elections.
0: Yeah, that's right.
1: Um, you know, it, it's really harkened me
0: back to, I mean, some of the research I did you know there was a um, there's kind of these spikes you know that come and go, um, and one of them was certainly after the Civil War, right? As African Americans were enfranchised to vote for the first time, and the result of that was that a number of African Americans were elected to office, um, right? Not just locally but nationally. And so this event in Colfax, Louisiana, that you refer to, was precisely that: that were African Americans elected to office, and when they tried to take office. There was a group of ex-confederate soldiers, you know led by a Baptist, led by a Louisiana Baptist, whose name, no kidding, was Christopher Columbus Nash. And he went on to found the White League, um which was a paramilitary organization like the KKK, that that not only the result of this was that that more than one hundred African Americans who were trying to defend the rights of their elected officials to take office, were executed on the court grounds. They, they basically um, had uh, surrounded the courthouse, turned a cannon on the courthouse, set the courthouse on fire and shot people as they were exiting uh, a burning a burning courthouse. And even after they took people uh, into custody, they just, they executed 50 people that night who were in custody uh, and buried them in a mass grave on the courthouse grounds, right? Um, in Grant Parish in Louisiana. And this, you know, there were prosecutions, but no, no convictions. Uh, the only nine people were brought uh, but there were no convictions uh, for for over a hundred a hundred deaths there. But but this was, you know, one of many many events. Um, it was that, that's really not that well known. I mean, it, 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 even in the 1920s, you know, we're coming up on the 100th anniversary of of the Tulsa race massacre, uh, where an entire section of town was burned down. Uh, a middle class African American, you know, section of town was turned down. And in the summer, it's worth noting that in the summer of 1920, 1921, there were riots across the country um, in more than 35 cities where white mobs were indiscriminately killing African-Americans. And what was going on there? They were coming out of the influenza outbreak of 1919 um, and a a terrible economic uh, situation. And it was largely uh, whites turning their, um, you know, frustrations on African-Americans and there were there were hundreds and hundreds of African Americans killed um, in those years following, uh, you know, the great influenza outbreak a hundred years ago.
1: Yeah, it really is striking how much of this history we keep repeating, and we haven't taken the time to unpack it. And that's one of the things that you do in the book, both at a at a big societal level as well as a personal level. And I think that's one of the things that really makes the the book fascinating. You unpack your history, which which as I was reading through, you know, a generation later, but still so much of what you were writing resonated with my own experiences growing up in a Southern Baptist church. And so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that story of of why it's important for us, you do this individually, but also talking about churches that are doing this and particularly on the church level, why is it important for churches to take a look at their history? Specifically, our history related to slavery and you know racial violence and segregation. Why should white churches be looking at their own history?
0: That's a great question. Um, you know, I did try to make this book personal. In fact, it's, it's the only book I've written that's been this personal. I mean, I usually have my social scientist hat on and I'm flying over at 30,000 feet you know, kind of laying the statistics out. Um, I
1: think that's why this book surprised me so much. And it resonated so much was, I am you, you know, I've written, you know your end of Christian America was a, was a great book, but then this one hit on just a whole nother emotional level. And so it really is almost jarring to have the social science and the personal together.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, it hit me too. I think that's, and I decided that I had to kind of write it as, as it was, as I was experiencing it, right. So, so I begin. The, you know, the the first sentence in the book has the word I in it. The last sentence in the book has the word us in it. So, I mean, I'm very much located here as part of the problem, right? Uh, and, and sort of, you know, I tell a lot of my family, own family's genealogy and history. You know, so I, I just to place it real quickly. I, I, you know, I grew up Southern Baptist in Jackson, Mississippi, uh, for the most part, um, and I was. That kid who was at church all the time and the youth group and, you know, Sunday school, all, you know, if the church was open and there was an event, I was basically there. Uh, and my my family's history is, uh, you know, Baptist, like all the way back as far as I can, I can trace it into middle Georgia. Six generations back, in fact, I, ha- I have my family's Bible from 1815 from middle Georgia, uh, which is the first generation to come down to Georgia from Virginia. Um, so, you know, it's way, way deep. Um, in my, in my family's roots. And, you know, I think I tried to kind of locate where these kind of ruptures were, where I began to get a glimpse that everything was not all as it appeared. And I I think one of the earliest times that happened, which is quite surprising, given how often I was in church, it wasn't until I was in seminary, right, where I, I first learned the history of our denomination. And that is that, you know, the Southern Baptist Convention was formed in 1845, precisely over this question of whether it was okay for someone who was Christian to enslave another human being based on the color of their skin. And the Northern Baptists had come to the conclusion that it was not and decided they would not appoint clergy or missionaries on that, who had enslaved other people. And the churches in the South kind of took their toys and went home, right? And said, nope, you know, actually, and, and that, that was the explicit purpose the Southern and Southern Baptist Convention is there because of this declaration, right? That, uh, that a very strong and deliberate uh, declaration that enslaving other human beings was perfectly compatible with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when I first, the reality of that first hit me, you know, I was in my early 20s, um, but it really has taken, I mean, I'm 52 years old now. I mean, it's taken three decades for it to really sink in and kind of in bit, bits and pieces, and dribs and drabs to really come to a place where I said, okay, I, we really do have to reckon uh, with this history. So to your point of like, why, I, I think there's two reasons. There's a kind of external reason and an internal reason. I mean, one, I think the external reason is because of the damage that's been done, right. To our African-American brothers and sisters. I think that the, the, we don't get slavery. We don't get Jim Crow. We don't get segregation without the blessing of white Christian churches legitimizing. Those ideas throughout American history, right? We've done enormous damage, you know, to American society, to the whole idea of a place where people can come and live on equal terms, uh, no matter what race uh, or religion they practice. And white Christians, I think, love to feel patriotic and good about themselves. But I, I think it's been it's really important that we take a hard look in the mirror at the damage, in particular, that we've done to African to our African American brothers and sisters on this front. In denying them their rights, and continuing in many ways to deny them their rights um, and oppose things that would put them on more equal footing. The other piece, though, I think is equally important, and that is that if you think about the kinds of contortions and distortions that have to happen in order for white supremacy to coexist with the gospel, it means that we have systemically distorted our own faith for centuries, really. I mean, since it landed on these shores, and even before that, I mean, we, we brought it with us from Europe. I mean, you know, these roots go go back further into Europe, in Western Europe, but 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 we have cultivated, you know, this ability for white supremacy to coexist with Christianity. And And what that has done is it really has distorted the faith. So I think for anyone who cares about an authentic Christian witness. Um, we have to take this real disease, really, that we've allowed to um to kind of live in the DNA of white Christianity quite seriously,
1: yeah, because I've heard some people say after Wednesday of, well, this isn't us. This isn't who we are. yeah, right. And but it it is in, in many ways. It is who we have been as a nation. It is who we have been as the church too often waving our Jesus signs and our Christian flags right alongside, uh, you know, the Confederate flag. And because we don't know our past though, that we can say this isn't who we are.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, imagine, you know, contemporary inhabitants of of Germany, like being faced with, you know, any any sort of neo-Nazis today marching and, uh, and them saying, Oh, this is not who we are. Right. I mean, uh, and of course we kind of know what they mean right and what they really mean is this is not the best of who we are you know but but you can't say and that's exactly right you can't say this is not who we are right i mean we had you know take my own denomination um, you know spoke out uh, and and was uh, largely you know complicit in propping up slavery even when there was a tide of abolitionism rolling across the country uh, but if you were looking for pastors who would speak out and speak boldly about the biblical basis for slavery you would find it among Baptists in the south right um and same thing for segregation i mean you know the many of the christian academies that are scattered all across the south were were set up precisely to keep uh white kids from going to school with african americans in the wake of brown v board of education they're almost all set up in the 60s and the 70s to allow white kids to escape public school uh, systems it was all about race so you know i think Again, we just have to kind of take these things seriously. And I, I think what we can say is, um, honestly, we can we can, we can can say this is not the best of who we are. I think I agree with that. But in order to kind of achieve, that's always an achievement. In order to achieve the best of who we are, we have to face the worst of who we are. And I, and I think, and, and the worst of who we've been. And, and I think we've not nearly had the appetite to do that yet.
1: Yeah, we don't like to admit that part of our story. Yeah. Yeah. The... Um... You know, you know, in the book about not just Baptist, but Methodist, other denominations, all splitting around the 1845 mark, and in, in many ways, not just happening before the Civil War, yeah. but really leading to the Civil War. And, you know, then you, you talk about segregation, right? The churches are behind on that. And then we get to our modern era where we have, you know, 80% of white evangelicals, you know, the group most supporting the candidate who has been empowering white supremacists and encouraging them over the last 5 years uh, some of the other research that you uh, point out in in the book that i think is you know really impactful is looking at attitudes towards confederate monuments towards the confederate flag towards all these types of you know symbols that we we see that white evangelicals are more accepting you know, less bothered by these symbols of white supremacy you know it, it seems like we you know we're doing the same thing that we did before we to- helped tear the country apart yeah you know it's remarkable
0: so go ba- going back you're right there was the Methodists also split that's right um and virtually every Protestant denomination split the Episcopalian split you know, right the Presbyterian split I mean and and it was all over this issue of, of slavery and in many ways the fact that the 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 larger denominations like the methodist splitting and the baptist splitting i mean there's a there's a uh, an honest r- way of reading history that the whole secessionist movement was birthed in christian denominational splits like those were dress rehearsals for the states themselves seceding and in many cases uh some of the same people who were involved in the denominational splits were active in the state's secessionist movements later. Basil Manley senior for example was instrumental in the Baptist split. he was also instrumental in drawing up the papers for Alabama's secession, you know as a, as a state um, several years later um, And then today you're right, we still see these patterns and you know if, if, um, if it is remarkable that if somebody asked me like uh, to say very very simply, what does the religious landscape look like in terms of politics um, today? You know, I I could say that certainly since Reagan, we have seen this very consistent pattern and you can describe it this way, that white Christian groups, white evangelicals and white mainline Protestants and white Catholics generally support Republican presidential candidates and everyone else support, basically has voted for Democratic presidential candidates. So uh, Christians of color, African-American Protestants, Latino Catholics, Asian-American uh, Protestants are all sort of leaning toward Democratic candidates, the unaffiliated lean toward Democratic candidates, Jews, Hindus, Buddhists, Sikhs, non-Christian religions lean toward Democratic candidates. So there's this kind of white Christian block, kind of on one side of politics. And then when you ask the question, well, how did they get there? Right. So that, that's been very consistent from the 80s forward. Well, how did they land in that place with Reagan? And the very simple answer to that question um, is it's it wasn't gay marriage. It wasn't abortion. The very simple answer and the straightest line you can draw up to there is that they move there out of a resistance to the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act in 1964 and 1965. And before that, you know, we, we would talk about the solid uh, Democratic South, right, that most white Christians in the South were Democrats. And the real thing that made them move from being Democrats to Republicans was the fact that the Civil Rights Act were passed became associated with the Democratic Party and the Democratic Party at the national level was supporting civil rights for African Americans. And there was a great white Christian flight from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party took about 15 years. Um, And by the time we get to Reagan, it's solidified. And it's been that block ever since. And in this last election, you're right, we had about eight and 10 white evangelicals voting for Trump. But we also had about six and 10 white mainline Protestants and about six and 10 white Catholics voting for Trump. And that pattern holds up um, among uh, all ki- all kinds of issues like Confederate flags, you know, uh, the police killing of African-Americans, perceptions of, of that. You see this pattern with a- with white evangelicals about eight and 10, and then white mainline Protestants and white Catholics
1: behind them, but not that far
0: um, on the same side of most of those issues.
1: Yeah, you know, one of the, this isn't in your book because it was more recent, but one of the, I think actually probably the survey that you all did this past year that just most, Impacted me most, hit me was the one of looking at people responding to is racism worse or not in our society, and finding that you know in the year 2020, in the fall when you're doing the survey that you know when we've had all of this potential to racial injustices, that we had white evangelicals actually moving and saying, oh, actually it's less of a problem. Yeah, racism is less of a problem than. We thought. Whereas everyone else is recognizing in this moment, which seems to be pretty obvious to me, you know that there there's that sense of denial was really striking in that, in that survey. And so, you know, the title of your book is white too long. And I I think that does get to some of the problem here. So, you know, how how do we, what do we do? Like, yeah, this is a long problem, but yeah. You know, how do do you have hope? You know, I, I, I do actually. um, And
0: and this is maybe going to surprise you, but you know, so I turned in the manuscript for this book, uh a year ago last fall right so that was before any of the summer of uh it was before george floyd's death and any of the protests there and i I say i think that i actually have a little more hope now than when i turned in the manuscript uh to the book um and the reason why i say that is a little maybe it's a little bit paradoxical because there's been much more it's been on ugly display right all year long so i think that feels heavier but in in some ways, I, I think that that is a more healthy place to be, right? because it it is harder to be in denial. It is harder to say there's nothing, you know, move along, nothing to see here. Um, it's kind of harder to keep saying that. And so I, I think that's a healthier place for the country to be, even if we haven't quite moved into sort of dealing with it uh, very well. but But the fact that it's out in front of us, and I'll, I'll give you a couple of a, a couple of examples that that give me some hope. So, my home state of Mississippi, Voted this year to remove the Confederate battle flag from its state flag. Now, if you had asked me again a year ago whether that was when that was going to happen, I, I think I would have said, you know, I think it'll happen before I'm in my grave, but I don't know, you know, when. Um, it may be decades uh, before that before that happens. And, and you know, it was it was uh, done over the summer, really, in response to you know these these big protests for racial justice and before the before it was going under consideration of the legislature, none other than the Mississippi Baptist State Convention held a press conference and called on its removal. Uh, and when it, when it was up for a vote 20 years ago, there was no big statement from Mississippi Baptists um, on that. So I, I count that as, as progress. One more, um, I spent um, a fair amount of time in Richmond uh, among the Confederate, the kind of grand Confederate monuments in, in Richmond and writing the book. And and actually did you know some archival research in the Daughters of the Confederacy archives while I was there. And there's this long monument avenue um, in in Richmond where these big, huge monuments on these traffic circles are. And when I was there, you know summer before last, you know i I would as I would write, write, and I would take a walk every day kind of down Monument Avenue because I just wanted to be in the you know uh, in in the shadows of those monuments as I was writing about them. And uh, there's five big ones there, and four of the five uh, are now gone. Um, right, the the kind of uh, pediments are there, but the statues are have been removed. Um, and the fifth one to Robert E. Lee is just kind of tied up in court proceedings. It's not really a matter of if, but when it'll be removed. And and I think that's a big deal. And and one little small anecdotal story: uh, the First Baptist Church of Richmond sits right on one of these traffic circles, like looking at one at these big big monuments. And as it was being removed, the uh, they rang the church bells to celebrate the removal. Now, that is – the reason that's such a big deal is because that, that church intentionally relocated there in the 1920s to be near these monuments, right? So it was a – the church, it like, very – relocated from downtown to be there. And back in the Civil War, that church offered that same bell to the Confederate Army to be melted down. To make a cannon out of to fight for white supremacy and for slavery. And so for that to come full circle and to have that bell being rung to celebrate this monument to white supremacy coming down, I think it's just another sign of hope and that things are turning, things are moving. There's no doubt, you know, it's going to be a struggle. It's not going to go down without a fight, as we're certainly seeing. But I, I think that that there's something different happening than I've ever seen in my in my lifetime.
1: Well, I, I love that beautiful imagery of thinking about the bell being offered as cannon fodder, you know, for the Civil War. And of course, it was. I remember seeing that when I used to live in Virginia and, and visiting, seeing the monuments there and seeing the sign about the bell being saved by a church member. That's why they still have it. And but there were other churches, that of course, that did did turn their bells into cannon. And then now, ringing those bells to remove what is it? Stonewall Jackson was the one, I think, right next to to First Baptist. Yeah, Jackson. Yeah. I don't know. You're giving me some hope. That it's a that's a beautiful kind of story right there, just to see that that happening. A- as we close up, you know, we're we're entering a new era in some ways. Next week we'll have a new president. We'll have our first black, South Asian, and female vice president who's a Baptist as well. We know that. And but at the same time, we know that this this you know, white lash is still there. It's still, you know, it's not going away. You know, we haven't solved the problems any more than you know the election of Barack Obama solved all of these these problems. And so, you know, what what do you see in the next phase, the next you know, few years? Where what do you what do you what do you think is going to be the issues that we're going to have to deal with on this topic? Well, you know, I, I think in many ways, um, you know,
0: what we're facing is a a process of white christians letting go right and letting go what i mean by that is letting go of um you know something was never a democratic notion um anyway um and that was that the country belonged to us right the country belonged to us white christians particularly us white anglo-saxon protestant christians and this sense of ownership i think of the country and that we were the country I think is is what, been one of the hardest things for white Christians to let go of, and I, I think that you know the symbols we saw last week were in many ways trying to reclaim that ownership over the country. Right? We are the country. When you hear this language about like America as we know it is going to be over, you know Trump doesn't win the election, like those kinds of things. I mean, they are expressions of something I think that people genuinely feel, however misguided they may be, right? And and however undemocratic and unAmerican those those sentiments may be, Um, but I I hope that we'll have, um, and this is where I think the work of pastors are really important um, at this moment, right? That, that the work of pastors of burying, uh, really, you know, in many ways, thinking about, you know, the skills you employ for funerals, right? When people are grieving, but to help people bury this idea of a kind of white Christian America, um, you know, and to, and to, from, from the death of that, to re-embrace what has really been the best of America's promise, and that is a multi-religious, multi-racial country, um, and how white Christians can play a role in in building that kind of healthy place, uh, right, instead of being really a force uh, for poisoning the well, which I think we we way too often have been. But I I think getting over this issue of ownership and and coming to a place of, uh, it's really about sharing right at, at the end of the day sharing power sharing access um sharing ownership um which is the way it should have been from the beginning but but now i think we're really having to uh, the is really being put to us do we really mean it when we say it's a place of religious freedom for all people um that that's who this country is um and that that no one should be discriminated against on the basis of their race do we really mean it if we do we can't keep insisting on this uh this older vision of america where white anglo saxon protestants are at the top of the heap and everybody else you know is is there by sufferance
1: well obviously i would encourage people to check out your book why too long also I want to note that you lead public religion research institute prri i don't know if you want to give a a pitch of why people should go check check out the site and the, the research that you all are constantly doing there
0: Sure. Yeah. No. We we um, you know do a dozen surveys a year. We're a nonpartisan, uh, a nonprofit, independent research organization that does research at the intersection of religion, culture, and politics. Um, so we try to stay you know relevant and kind of keep feeding journalists and the public and religious leaders real good data about kind of where American opinions are and and also
1: about changing demographics in the country. As a religion journalist, I appreciate the the data that you all created. That's uh, dot org. So thank you, Robbie so much for being with us on the program, but uh, even more so for helping be, I guess the, uh, uh, a funeral director for, for, for white Christian America for us here and helping us to, to bury these ideas.
0: Great. Thanks. I really appreciate uh,
1: the opportunity to be here. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of Baptist without an adjective. You can find the public religion research Institute at prri.org and I would also encourage you to read the book White Too Long The Legacy of White Supremacy in American Christianity as always you'll find us at wordandway.org and don't forget to check out our sponsoring partner for this week's episode the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship at cbf.net if you've enjoyed this episode I hope that you'll share it with your friends on Facebook and head over to iTunes or your favorite podcast platform and write a positive review it really does help more people to find the show you can find easy-to-share links at podcast.wordandway.org. If you'd like to give to support this program, we greatly appreciate it. And all you have to do at wordandway.org is hit the Donate button. And whatever you give there will help support the production of this podcast, as well as our website and monthly magazine. And speaking of that magazine, if you're not a subscriber, I have a special offer for you. Get your first year for half off. Just go to tinyurl.com slash If you have any comments or feedback about this program, you can send those to me at bkaler at wordandway.org. Thanks for listening.